it seems to me in recent years that there have been more and more pastors, theologians, Christian ministers who have been found out to have been leading a double life. Most recently, uh, perhaps you've seen in the news that the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, who for many, many years traveled the world defending the faith, came out to be revealed that he had sexually abused women over many years through uh, massage parlors and, and uh, other things. And I've written, I've, I've seen some of his books, I've listened to some of his lectures, very smart man, who we all thought was upstanding believer, who engaged in Christian ministry on numerous levels. But it's now been revealed that that wasn't the case, in part. That he had this part of his life that he kept hidden from the world that um, would have disqualified him if it had come out, so he decided to keep it quiet. And as a result, the ministry that he found in the, the lives that he touched, the family that he left behind, are now suffering for it. Well, because of a double life. Another one that I can think of recently in, in the past few years, James McDonald, who was pastor of Harvard Church and the Chicago, Illinois area. Used to listen to him all the time on the radio, podcast. A few years ago it came out he had been abusing church funds and had been unrelentless, unrelentless in his temper and, and had been uh, compromised sexually a few times. He was leaving a double life and as a result he lost his ministry. Whether on a personal level for everybody, whether in courtrooms or counseling sessions, oftentimes the truth comes out and people are revealed for who they really are. We thought they lived this way and they were doing this type of thing, but in reality they were doing the direct opposite and leading what we know as the double life. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul lays out for us a challenge here. Do not just avoid a lifestyle, but to be totally committed to living the life God has for us. We must live the life God has for us. You say, well, pastor, I, I can see that from this passage of Scripture, but how do I do that? How do I lead the life that God has for me? I want to give you two actions this morning that will develop this and the first one comes from verses 17 through 19 and it's simply this we reject we reject the la- the past life we reject the past life look at verse 17 this i say therefore and testify in the lord that you shall no longer walk as the gentiles walk in the futility of their mind in reality, what we have going on here, as, as by way of, of just linking back, and you can see, as we've discussed uh, several times, going back to four, verse 1, use the word therefore, and we'll see it again in verse 25, we'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 1, all links back to previous discussions. That's where it bases itself in. And, and nonetheless, here in verse 17, the word therefore links back to verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
So this is how we practice that. This is how we practice walking worthy. We reject the past lifestyle. What Paul is doing here is he's explaining, okay? He's developing his thesis. He's supporting it with evidence, but he's explaining, okay, how does this work? Okay? Paul wants his readers and he wants us to concretely experience this. What does it mean to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called? It means that you reject the former lifestyle. And for Paul, and I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating, it's not about theory, but practice. When, when, when I preach the Word of God, when I study the Word of God, when you, whether you do it uh, personally or corporately here, it should be not with the goal of saying, oh, that was nice. It should be with the goal of saying, okay, what do I need to do to change? Okay, that's why that's Paul writes here. He's saying these things so that his readers, which includes us, know what to do to change. It's not just about theory. It's about practice. Notice also with me that this, this exhortation comes from a biblical believing perspective. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. The word testify here, Paul uses it to create a great matter of importance. It's urging his readers to take action, to take what he has to say seriously. This is essential to our lives as believers. We cannot take take it lightly or consider it a non-issue. An illustration I would use for this is, do you remember when you were a kid and your mom and dad, maybe maybe this was just me, your mom and dad would use the phrase or use some actions to draw your attention to them. And they would say such things as, look at me when I'm talking to you. Now, for some of you, that was more of a negative thing because you knew that you were going to get in trouble for what you just did. But the point was, when they say, look at me when I'm talking to you, or perhaps sometimes you didn't want to, so you kind of had to draw their attention physically. And we do that with Josiah now. Sometimes he doesn't want to look at us when we're talking to him and trying to discipline him, so he kind of looks away and we have to draw his attention to us. The point was that they wanted you to pay attention to what they had to say. It was serious. It was to be taken seriously. That's what Paul does here. He, it's, it's, he, he, he draws our proverbial attention to himself and says, guys, I want you to pay attention to what I have to say. And I'm not saying it of, of myself. I'm saying it in the Lord. Okay, so Paul is using that phrase to refer to Christ. This is where the discussion takes place. So Paul is in Christ, and he can speak authoritatively on what he has to say. So he's drawing our attention to this belief, from this believing perspective to what he has to say. He has says several things. First, he says, life as a pagan was once the standard for us. That you should no longer walk. The word no longer, again, previous condition. We see this, we've seen this before. Going back to chapter 2, verse 1, those, those past tense verbs that Paul used to describe a former condition that we had, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, among whom also we all once conducted, and were by nature children of wrath. Former condition, but no longer. Praise God for that, right? Once we were, but now we're not. But that draw still lasts because of our sin nature. So Paul has to say, no longer, you're no longer this. 
The word walk, we've seen it before, means to, to live a pattern of life. So no longer live the pattern of life of a pagan, of an unbeliever. For the, for the Jews back in Paul's day, this is you know, the, the contrast, again, Jews and Gentiles. And so I'm using the word pagan or unbeliever to, to refer to those without Christ. That's how Paul uses it here. He says, you no longer, don't live like that because you're no longer a part of that. And note also that Paul says that that life is empty in the futility of their mind. This is a continual pattern for the, for, for the Gentile, for the unbeliever. That, that, that word walk is in the present tense. So they continually are in this pattern of futility, of having no value. That's the idea of the word new. The, the futility, and the being without use or no value. And where's the futility? Where's the no value? Occur, it occurs in the mind, the way of thinking. The Paul is using this as to describe a person's way of thinking. And so the Gentiles are continually in this valueless, no purpose way of thinking. It's completely empty. It cannot please God or understand Him. They try to be a value, but cannot because of their sin. It all goes back to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Life as a pagan, life as an unbeliever is empty. There's this continual pattern, repetition of trying to please God, trying to know God, but coming up with nothing in return. Why would we want that lifestyle? Why would we want a continual pattern of being futile, no value, when, when God has redeemed us to something far greater? Notice also that Paul says that life as a pagan has a dark thought process. The further description here in verse 18, having their understanding darkened. Again, the, the, the participle here the, the, in your grammar, having, continual, state. Darkened understanding is the norm for them. And what is this understanding? It, it means the faculty of thinking, comprehending, or reasoning. And in other words, it's, it's the way we think. It's how we process information. How we rationally come to a conclusion on, on an issue or a subject. Or for the unbeliever, the pagan, their way of thinking is dark. It is clouded by sin. It is corrupted by lust. It is darkened by sin's black clouds. And that's a direct contrast, as we'll see, going to chapter 5, to the believer. If you jump over to chapter 5, verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The believer's way of thinking is light, but the pagan's way of thinking is darkness. Why participate with something that has no light? I have no doubt that we were glad this morning to step outside and see the sunshine. It was a great feeling. And I, I, I'm guessing that if we had stepped out and seen dark clouds and snow coming down, I think our mood would have changed a little bit, wouldn't it have? 
But light is something that we always desire, something always we want. And more importantly, in the spiritual realm, we have light within us. We are to walk as children of light. So why participate with something that doesn't have light? It just doesn't make sense. It's a darkened way. It's, 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 it's a, a path of understanding things from a dark perspective, from sin's perspective. And the result is that this, this has been done to them by their sin. That's, that their understanding is darkened by sin, and it is their own fault. Please also notice that life as a pagan is really no life at all. Being alienated from the life of God. We've seen that term before, being alienated. means to estrange, set apart, alienate. And the construction shows that this is something that happened in the past that has present-day results. The Gentiles, in their futile understanding and darkened mind, are excluded from God. Jump back to verse, chapter 2, verse 12 with me, if you will. We, we saw this a little bit before. Where Paul talks about the Gentiles who are, who are outside of the body, now in the body. He says, Verse 11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, that's the term there, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of providence, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who the pagan, the unbeliever is today. They have no life. Well, they may look like they have life. They may look like they're enjoying life, but in reality, they do not have it. Paul uses the phrase, from the life of God. A better way to understand this would be the life which comes from God. Source. So, the pagan who walks around today, the unbeliever who walks around today, is alienated from life that comes from God himself. And so reality, they are under the sentence of death. Just like it says in chapter 2, verse 1 again, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So the unbelieving pagan who walks in that lifestyle that we once were part of, he has no life. He has no opportunity for advancement. He may look like it on the outside, but on the inside there is darkness, there is death. Please also note that being lifeless is the result of a hard heart to the things of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Here we have the reason. Okay, Why are they alienated from the life that comes from God? The reason is they're hard-hearted. Here that word means lack of information that may result in reprehensible conduct. It's, it's, It's... it's to this point of lacking the information, so you're going to go do something, and then you find out later, oh, that wasn't the thing to do. This really emphasizes the need for people to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on, them, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They're ignorant. They don't know. Now, that does not excuse them. We read that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans. There is no excuse for their sin. 
but they don't know, so they're ignorant, so they just know what to do naturally. And what is that, what is that to do naturally but to act like an unbeliever? And that way is in them. Notice that that is in them refers to, it's in their, in their lives even now. They, they can't escape. They're always acting in ignorance because they lack information. Again, the choice is theirs. They are responsible for their sin, but they are still ignorant, and that continual status lacks is in them. And they are because of the blindness in their, of their hearts. Here, I think the translators, I'm using the New King James, and, and perhaps you are using different translations. You could understand this as blindness of the heart, I think a better way of understanding this, according to just the, the word that is used here in the context, is the hard-heartedness of the heart. Because this word it describes a callous, a state or condition of complete lack of understanding. It's a medical term that, that refers to the idea of, of a callous covering a wound. Perhaps some of you have had a recovering uh, from injuries and such. I know I've banged... Uh, was working the other day, and I think I've, I've got some calluses from working. What happens when that, when that happens? You're working with something, and you start rubbing your hand on the tool or whatever, and you, you develop a callus. You develop a hard heart or hard skin there, and it's done to protect you so you don't damage anything else. But the callousness here, the hard-heartedness here, is result of the Gentiles' darkened mind. And it's their own fault. Because of their ignorance, because they're acting in ignorance, because of the, the, the darkened understanding, they have turned their hearts away from God and hardened them. They're calloused towards Him. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, and this is described of Pharaoh as, as Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? You remember that? And so was unaffected by what God wanted him to do. So this is lifelessness. It's it's a result of a hard heart. Please also notice that lifeless paganism shamelessly indulges in the unbecoming conduct which corrupts every area of existence. The same pastor, that was a mouthful. What does that mean? Okay. In other words, let me just simplify it for you. They pursue shameful actions without reservation, and the result is they corrupt every part of their lives. Let me say that again. They pursue shameful actions without reservation, and the result is they corrupt every part of their lives. Who being past feeling? That, word, that, that phrase, being past feeling, means to be so injured, so inured, excuse me, that one is not bothered by the implications of what one is doing. We, we use a, another term, seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about this, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It, it has the idea of someone doing something, knowing it's wrong, but not caring. The idea of, of callousness is there as well. It doesn't affect them any longer. They've done it so many times, they've built up a hard heart to it, and it doesn't affect anymore. They're not, they're not uh, impacted by it. You know, you can name off whatever. whatever. You can name off pornography. You can, you, can, you can name off any other sin you want to. And Paul says they, they, they've just pursued that 
and they're unfeeling. They don't care. It doesn't bother them that they've sinned or doing something they're not supposed to. Have given themselves. The idea of have given is to, to convey a strong personal interest. And there's personal responsibility here. They have given themselves over to these actions. So it's not just that they have, they have willingly done these actions, whatever they might be. They have been eager to do them. They have been personally interested in them, whatever they might be. And what are these actions? Their lewdness means lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Basically, they're doing everything society looks down upon. Everything that society says, you know, it's just not kosher, not, not acceptable. They're eager to do it. They're, they're interested in doing that. Sound like something that's going on today? We have a society that is pursuing lewdness, lack of self-control. They're interested in doing it. And the result is to work all uncleanness with greediness. The word uncleanness means a state of moral corruption. This is what happens to every unbeliever. They reach a state where they are totally impure in every way. Whether they're thinking, their action, their words, they continue to pursue that which is, is socially unacceptable. They lack self-control, and the result is every part of their lives is impure, and they're doing it greedily. They desire more and more and more and more. They can't stop. Kind of reminds you what Paul or James writes to the, um, the believers in, in the book of James. Again, this is believers here, but believers struggle with the same thing, yet they have the Spirit within them. Notice what he says in James chapter 4, verse 2 You lust and do not have, you murder and covenant and cannot obtain, you fight and war, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, picture that scenario, but with no restraint, with no conviction, with no spirit involved. Unrelenting moral corruption that is pursued in one's own self-interest and done with the attitude of wanting more and more and more and more. It leads me to ask, are you consistently rejecting your past life? Now, some of you might say, and I, I agree with you, Pastor, I've never done anything like that. You know, what you're talking about, mm, hasn't been me. And maybe not. Maybe you haven't been pursuing the, the uh, lack of self in your past. For, before Christ, you weren't pursuing a, 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 a selfish lifestyle that was full of lewdness and, and greediness, being wanting more and more, but, but the Bible says, as we've seen before in the book of Ephesians, that's who we all once were, regardless of whether we outwardly practice it or not. We still were lost, morally corrupt, ignorant, hard-hearted to God. That is why this is so important, and as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Are you consistently rejecting the former life? And to be honest with yourselves, you've got to ask yourself these questions. 
as well, why would you want to live that life anyway? Right? But we still struggle with that, don't we? I know I do. Why would I want to go back and live, and not that I've done those things before, but why would I go back to that lifestyle that has no life, is fully corrupt, is totally greedy, is totally self-interested in doing things that are socially unacceptable, and the result is I'm corrupt in every way. There's no hope there. Why would I want that anyway? But you still see believers over and over again Pursuing both worlds, dabbling here in the old life, but okay, keeping one foot in the new life, when in reality they're more invested in the old life than the new life. And maybe this morning, I don't know your hearts, I don't know where you're at, but I would encourage you this morning, if you are pursuing the old life, please stop. There is nothing beneficial for you there. Trust me, I've been there. what you and I need to do to live the life that God has for us. Reject the past lifestyle. Don't go there. Don't pursue it. It will only end up in corruption in every way. The second action that we need to take, I did make it out of point one. I'm so proud of myself. I did make it out of point one. That we devote ourselves to the new life. Okay? Old life, we reject, we get rid of it. Now we devote ourselves to the new life. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. The new life is the result of learning about the person of Christ. That's how we came to know Christ, is is learning about Him. and, And the new life comes from that. The word learned here means to gain by experience or skill by instruction. For the Ephesians, they were taught about Christ through the ministry of Paul and others. It wasn't factual learning, but learning a person through a relationship. We might use the illustration of, of being in a marriage or dating relationship. When, you're, when, you're, when I was dating my wife and everything, I had to know not just the facts about her, right? I didn't know that, yeah, I didn't just had to know what her birthday is April 1st. She's an April Fool's baby, so you can have fun with that all you want to. Um, not just the fact, but I had to know the person, right? Because when you, if you're going to live in a relationship with a person, especially one that you're married to, you better know who they are in and out. Or else that relationship isn't going to succeed. You have to know the, the person, be in a relationship, being intimately knowledge, knowledgeable about their life, not just the facts. That's the description Paul uses here. Knowing Christ. Not factual-wise, but intimately knowing Him. Let's say you've not learned, so learned Christ. The word so means to, can be also translated in this way or in this manner. So Paul is contrasting what he just said, the old lifestyle, but you didn't learn Christ that way. That is not the, the person of Christ that you learned. You learned something new. And the new life comes as the result of salvation and spiritual growth. If you indeed, verse 20 on, have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. The word heard, heard means to, to refer to the, the salvation experience. experience. Okay, you need to hear, as we just read in, in Romans, hearing the gospel, 
more than likely results in one getting saved through the power of the Spirit. And you are taught, okay, have been taught by Him spiritual growth. There is no new life without Christ. That's the prerequisite. If you want the new life today, if you're, you're here today and you, you've never confessed you were a sinner, there was no way you were getting apart from, to God from Jesus Christ, you haven't done that. You haven't accepted His free gift of salvation. Again, I would urge you to consider you're in the Gentile category. You're in the pagan category. But you don't have to stay there. You can come to that new life. But that has to come through Jesus Christ. Not through your own efforts, not through your church attendance, not through your church tithe, not through your good works. It only comes through Jesus. Notice also with me that this new life comes from the truth. As the truth is in Jesus. That, that phrase links back to verse 20 but you have not so learned Christ as the truth is in Jesus. And the idea there is that the Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. So as the believer learns about Christ, he learns truth and how the truth is to be lived out. Living truth means living the new life. Jesus is the truth. We learn him, we have learning, learned about him, are learning him, and so we are learning truth. We're not learning abstracts. We're not learning theories. We're learning the truth. Paul says the truth comes from him. And the result is that the new life has gotten rid of the old pagan lifestyle that you have put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now, it may seem that the phrase there, you put off, is a command or instruction, I think we need to see it as a past action. Okay, that's, that's the idea here. The word put off means to take off or get rid of. So when we came to Christ, we put off, we got rid of the old lifestyle. That was our former conduct. That was our former way of living. The idea of word conduct here is, is life expressed according to certain principles. So you live your life with certain guidelines in place. For some of you, you have, have certain restrictions on you by way of diet. So those are your kind of guidelines that when you go to a restaurant or you uh, go somewhere to eat, you have these guidelines in place for how you're to eat and you can't violate them because there could be some, some physical consequences because of it. Well, that's the word conduct, living life to the guidelines that you have set. And for the pagan, obviously the guidelines are no guidelines, Whatever I want to do, whatever I'm interested in, I don't care who cares. That former conduct is associated with the old man. The old man is consistently used in the New Testament to refer to the sin nature, which once dominated our lives before Christ. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We once had a sin nature that dominated our lives, but no longer. Amen? We're no longer dominated by sin. The old man's still around, and we'll get to that. He's still around but we put him off when we got saved. 
because his end is always corrupt. Notice there, it grows and corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. There's a deterioration that goes on when you're in that lifestyle apart from Christ. The unbeliever, the pagan, who wallows in his sin is the result of the inner old man who continually causes corruption and deterioration in life. And that comes from, that corruption comes from deceitful lusts. Deceitful lusts. The word deceit here has the idea of, of, of to be promising everything but delivering nothing. One author I, I read, uh, commentator read, said this, it is deception which promises fullness of life, a full promise it cannot fulfill. So the old man is corrupt, he's continually deteriorating, but he still has these lusts, and those lusts are deceitful. They promise everything but deliver nothing. So what Paul is emphasizing here is the, the inherent sin nature in man at salvation. Sin dies and no longer has control over life. That's what Paul says, you put off the old man. When we got saved, we got rid of that inherent sin nature. We still struggle with sin. Sin is still around, but the control of it is no longer. It's also a renewing process. Verse 23 and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, the way it's written, it seems like it's command. It's more of a reflection. It's our being renewed. So it's, it's reflecting on an action that is taking place in life, in the life of the believer. And our being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word renewed here, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means to make young again. An illustration I might use is you see them on time on TV, you see the ads for the, especially for the ladies' side of things, uh, makeup and other creams and stuff to make you look young again, right? But what's the problem with that? You look young on the outside, but how do you feel on the inside? You feel the same. It's supposed to make you look young again, it's supposed to renew you. And there's some correlation, I understand. When you look good on the outside, you feel good on the inside. I get that. But they promise that you're going to look new, and, but in reality, you never feel like it. Well, here, Paul says you are being renewed, and you will be new. The two go hand in hand. You are being renewed. And where are you being renewed? In the spirit of your mind. Again, Paul's thinking about, talking about thinking and it's the inner part of you that thinks. It's, it's the inner uh, mind of a person. Unlike the darkened thinking that happened in the previous few verses, this is renewed thinking which is done by the Holy Spirit. Verse Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The inner man needs to be renewed because he has been decaying because of the sin nature. When we got saved, we were corrupt and fallen and deteriorating on the inside, and so there needs to be that work of renewing by the Holy Spirit in our minds, and that's how we learned Christ, that He would do those things for us. And then also notice that the new life has been made a reality. It has been made a reality 
that you put on. Again, the emphasis is past action. So putting off the old man, being renewed in your spirit, and now what has happened? You have put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holy. So you put off something, you've put on something. The idea is it, 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 it was used in the original language to refer to putting on clothes. So you've put off the old clothes, as it were, and you've put on the new ones. And what have you put on? You've put on the new man. The new person in Christ that you have become is the new nature. The old nature is gone, amen? Now we have a new nature as believers in Jesus Christ. A new one that can be responsive to God and be pleasing unto Him and doing what He wants. Colossians 3, verse 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created him. You put on the new man. This new man was created. The word created means to bring to existence. And the idea of the construction is to show that it was done to us, not by us. We can never create anything new in us as believers. It all comes from the work of God in our lives. I believe there's a word for that. Grace. God working in our lives. He has made us new, and that is all His work, not ours. So we better not take credit for it. And this new man comes from righteousness and holiness. The word righteousness means to right living, supposedly living rightly in relationship to other, other human beings. So we're supposed to, as, as we put on the new man, it's created according to God's standard. And it's created to do right things, live rightly with other people. Unlike going back to verses 17 through 19 where we were living in a wrong relationship with other people, we were using them for our own purposes. We now live in a right relationship with them and we live in a right relationship with God. That's the word holiness. It means a state of proper attitude towards God as exhibited by actions. We are taking actions as a result of the new man that are done to reflect a reverence for God and a desire to be holy like He is in all of our actions. 1 Peter 1.15, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We can now live in a right way with other people and live holy because of this new life. And all of that is sourced in truth. Again, in your translation, it says in true righteousness and holiness. If you're using King James or New King James, uh, they will translate it that way. I'd rather, I think the, the construction of the word in the original language shows the word true to be source. So, in righteousness and holiness, which comes from truth. It's not our righteousness, it's not our holiness, it comes from God's truth. God's truth sets the bar for our new life. God does it, not us. So that leads me to ask you a question this morning. Are you committed to the new life? You, know, you, you as a believer, you've been saved. You've been brought from death to life. You, you've, you've been saved from passionately pursuing things that ultimately are a damnation to you and been given new life. Are you committed to that? Are you all in on that? Or are you, like I said earlier, keeping one foot in both worlds? I say this to myself as much as to anybody. I need to be committed to the new life I have in Christ and living that out. I cannot live like the old me. 
That's not who I am. That's not who you are. You are a new person in Christ. Praise God. Now live like it. Act like it. I need to act like it. We all need to live like the new person God has made us to be. Are you committed to that this morning? In your relationships, are you committed to treating others with love and respect rather than degrading speech like the pagans do? At your work, where maybe your boss is a little hard on you and you're tempted to snap back at him and just go all out because you're, you want to defend yourself and you want to make things right rather than humbly maybe confronting him and saying, hey, everything okay? Did I do something wrong here? How can we work this out? Embrace the new life you have in Christ. Live that out. Don't live the old life out. That old life was corrupt and had no benefit for you, but because of Christ, you have a new life. Are you committed to that new life this morning? Although many lives, there are many lives today that are being lived out in duplicate or triplicate. They live one way here, they live another way here. They're doing this thing here, they're saying this thing here. Although that's the case for many lives, that's not the case for ours. God has laid out for us in this passage of Scripture that living a double life is not to be the description of our lives. We can live the life that He has for us. How do we do that? We reject the past lifestyle. If necessary, we, we, if we're trying to incorporate it into our lives again, we get rid of things that associate with that past lifestyle, and we live the new life We devote ourselves to the new life, committed to the new life. We embrace the things. We live like the new man in our world. And as we go into this week, may that be the commitment, not only this week, but for the rest of our lives. Let's you and I live the life that God has for us.